Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but is composed by people, and each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it, and Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code, because Ethereum is people all the way down, and it always has been. Today, I'm talking with Meltem Demirs, the Vibes Sorceress, the Queen of Crypto, has been in the crypto space for over eight years now and has just so many lessons to share as to what goes on in part of every single corner of the crypto industry. Meltem is a relentless grinder. She's a super hard worker, and she's also, as I alluded to, the Queen of Vibes, I'd like to say. She's a, a big curator of experiences and vibes in the real world, which is where the crypto world is trending towards, in my opinion. And I actually didn't know that we were going to get into this subject, but we end up talking a lot about the concept of cults, of communities, of organizations with shared values, and how we are going from a world of few of these things, uh, starting with like empires back, you know, a thousand years ago, going into religion, going into nation states, going into corporations, using the cult model to understand what a corporation is, to where we are now with where there's one community per token and we have DAOs and NFT projects. And each one of these things represents, in a way, some sort of cult. While there's a lot of people that think the word cult is negative, we don't do that. We actually kind of consider it as for what it is, which is, you know, alignment of people around shared values, shared sets of interests. And now that there's so many tokens and so many DAOs and so many NFT projects, there's many, many different reasons to all find one's resonance with some sort of organization. We also talk about the moving from the, you know, computer-only era of crypto to where crypto is really starting to take over in terms of social culture. We have our own language in crypto, and now that's starting to bleed out into the rest of the world. And so what does that mean for crypto culture moving forward? So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Meltem Demir. She's insanely intelligent. She's one of my favorite people in this industry. And she has a lot of very unique insights about how the world works and how it relates to crypto. So I think you will learn a ton in this podcast. Let's go ahead and get right into it right after we talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. What's up, Meltem? How's it going? Hey, what's up, David? Oh, nothing much. This is the, the earliest I've ever done a layer zero. And you are in uh, London. How long have you been in, in London before? Um, So I'm here for three weeks. So I was in London, then uh, Paris, because CoinShares acquired a company in Paris. So we now have a Paris office, mm-hmm. which is really fun. Got to hang out with our, our French team, which very focused on, on DeFi. We're going to be rolling out some really cool stuff in the next few months. And now back in London. So good times. I think uh, your trajectory throughout crypto, I think, is interesting. And it's, I think, the thing that I kind of want to focus on over time. But I want to start at the very, <laughs> very beginning. Can you just give us the basic picture Wait, of how on. you got into crypto? Sure. What do you mean the trajectory is interesting? You have to, like, you have to expand on that a bit. Like, unpack okay. that for me. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I so, want to know what I'm getting into. <laughs> I think how I view your trajectory in crypto is uh, grinding super, super hard for two, three years, and of which you still are. But then the bull market came, and now you are vibing. That's kind of the mental model I have for Meltem. It's just like, <laughs> I remember when you came on Bankless and you you had the line, I've brought the receipts. And this is in regards to like the money printing, yeah. the inevitable debt issues that the United States is going to go through. And then also just being like working your ass off at CoinShares for years and years. And then and then the bull market came and then all of a sudden um, the social life of crypto has taken off. Yeah. I've, in my brain, giving you the nickname uh, Vibes Queen, Queen of Vibes. <laughs> I do love my, yeah. I love my vibes. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, crypto needs a high priestess of sorts. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we're going to create any energy, I want it to be 
good energy. But we can definitely delve into that. Um, I will also say, by the way, David, the way this whole thing came about. So I came on Bankless, I think, over a year ago at this oh, point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had a fun conversation. I think we were in Whistler. We were a few glasses of wine deep. <laughs> and you were like, hey, Vibe Sorcerer, <laughs> can I recruit you for my new podcast? So mm-hmm. this whole situation materialized during a high vibes moment. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, it takes a special person with a lot of vibes that have interesting perspectives on crypto. You know, crypto is only so many years old and it's so much of that history is really baked into like the last five or six years. Uh, and I think you've had a pretty privileged, like bird's eye view of the industry, just as somebody who is already financially minded, investment minded prior to starting in crypto, uh, which is, I think, for a lot of people, it's their first escapade into the concept of money, economies, finance. But I think you were already pretty well savvy in that before getting into crypto. And so gaining that perspective from your first entrance into the industry, watching it evolve as an industry, having that prior knowledge, I think is really interesting. And then also, uh, like I alluded to, watching the social world of the industry blossom, especially in New York, yeah. I think is definitely interesting as well. So I want to I want to get into all of these things. Yeah, well, let's let's rewind. Maybe I think at this point, I've been in the industry for close to eight years, which is a crazy <laughs> number, if you mm-hmm. think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I started, it was really Bitcoin. So personally, I got into Bitcoin in the end of 2012. So at this point, it's been almost 10 years that I've personally been really into Bitcoin. I'm still really into to Bitcoin, which perhaps, you know, Bitcoin's been interesting. Um, to some people, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. To others, I'm not a pure enough Bitcoiner. So it's it's interesting. Like there's this purity test we now have to pass, apparently. Some days I pass, some days I don't. I've, <laughs> I've given up trying <laughs> to figure out where I am, what camp I'm in. But I started my formal career in crypto um, in, in 2015 at Digital Currency Group. And I think what's so funny to me is when I talk to people now who are new to the crypto ecosystem who maybe came in in 2017, 2018, and sort of the first um, like big wave of, of growth with ICOs and tokens, or people who came in and in this wave with NFTs, when I talk to them about 2015, 2016, 2017, Bitcoin, the block size wars, they have no idea what I'm talking about. They have no idea who I'm talking about. Even going back and talking about the DAO hack and, and what happened there, like most people in crypto t- today, when I say slock it, right? Like they can tell me who that is. When we talk about like the parody hack, like a parody bug, right? They, they don't know what that is. So I think it's just really funny in a way. I feel like crypto grandma, because there's all of this really rich, really relevant historical context that I think so many people newer to the industry just, just don't really have. And I think having that context is is so important in understanding like why we're here, how we got here. Because really the ideas that we see implemented t- today, they're ideas we've been talking about since 2013, 2015, right? Like these ideas are not necessarily new in and of themselves. What's really exciting for me is that we're finally at a, a point, right? Especially as an investor who's invested in these ideas and watched them fail perhaps or or not really achieve their end goal, um, it's really cool now to see those ideas we've been talking about for so long actually being implemented and being 
feasible to implement because all of the tooling and infrastructure, the sort of requisite building blocks around these ideas now exist. And also the market for these ideas exists. So yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a long time. Um, it's also, I feel sometimes I feel tired. I'm not going to lie. The last six months have been challenging for me personally. You know, there's so much happening in the space. A lot of it's really exciting, but you also see the same patterns repeating, particularly with like influencers and influencer culture continuing to be part of crypto. And it brings out sort of this really gross side of, of the industry. We see a lot of this with NFTs, right? And we can delve into that. I'm, I'm not judging it, but it's just, it's a little bit exhausting. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I'm like, is this really what I'm here to, to do with my time and my energy? I'm not, I'm not really always sure. Like, I like to believe that what we're doing is making the world a better place. But when 40, 50% of all crypto in circulation is held by centralized custodians that are effectively banks that are subject to all of the same controls um, that traditional financial institutions are, I just feel like we've missed the plot maybe a little bit. So, so that's where I'm at personally. That's why I'm trying to lean into the vibe. I'm like sort of feeling my way through um, because I do think some of the aspirations we had, particularly as someone who identifies as a libertarian and a bit of like a cypherpunk, um, I'm not really sure we're living up to those ideals. In some ways we are, in other ways we're not. So. Sure. And I definitely want to go into that. But first, there's many phases of crypto that you've been through, right? The, there's like the proof of work fair launch phase, the ICO phase. Yeah. One, one thing I think might might be frustrating is that like how recyclable are those experiences and skills that you developed while navigating like the Bitcoin proof of work fair launch phase, right? Or like being good at like investing in ICOs how useful is that that those experiences now that crypto is completely different and has nothing to do with ICOs and like crypto goes through these waves of uh, bull markets and bear markets and each one has its own flavor and has its own yeah. characterization and you talked about like you can see the patterns right like the influencers yeah. always arrive every single bull market but yeah. when you say tell me you've been in this industry for 8 years i look at this industry and i really only see the last like 2 to 3 years as being real like only in the last two to three years did the use cases actually like have stickiness when it comes to actual utility for mainstream, other than like the true nature of Bitcoin and the 21 million units that, that, you know, that'll be forever, of course. I would actually fundamentally disagree with that. Really? Look, I think the premise for me has always been like money is free, money is speech, right? Like money is a core pillar of democracy. Money is a core pillar of what makes a free society possible, right? And so I think the premise of Bitcoin has remained unchanged. Yes. The value proposition of Bitcoin has remained unchanged. You know, I see right now there's a lot of like pearl clutching around proof of work versus proof of stake. First of all, they're not substitutes. They're not even remotely close to substitutes. They accomplish two very different things, both of which are valuable and, and should exist. But conflating one to be equivalent to the other is like insanity. I think the whole ESG movement is complete insanity. Like, do I agree that we need to be concerned about sustainability? Absolutely. It's something I'm very concerned about and invest in. But do I think the way in which we're doing it makes sense? Like, no, absolutely not. Um, and so I just think there are a lot of these sort of narrative violations in, in crypto that come up every single cycle. And there are certain things that just have remained consistently true, like crypto by and large, the majority of volume is still coming from market makers, large institutions. It's just that 
instead of the institutions being TradFi like we thought they would be, crypto institutions have become so large and command so much capital that they're actually the largest players in this market. And I think will be the largest players actually in all markets going forward, which is kind of a scary thought. But look, I think the last eight years um, have been really informative. And what I've learned does translate from cycle to cycle. And the same characters pop up time and time again. They may have different names. They may have different faces. But every cycle we have, you know, the same sort of characters, the same personalities, the same uh, waves, which again is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's um, it's interesting to observe because there is a sort of cyclical trend that occurs every two to three years in crypto. And then on top of that, there's this broader secular trend. So cyclical being short term, secular being, you know, longer term. If we look at the 10-year trend line on Bitcoin, right, it's up into the right. If we zoom out and look 10 years ahead for Ethereum and Web3 and other protocols and ecosystems, I think you'll see the same secular trend. I think the question is, how do you navigate those cycles, both as an investor, but also as a person, right, who has emotions and an ego? And so a lot of what I've been doing with the vibing, as you call it, is just trying to manage my mental state through this extreme volatility because after eight years, it does become mentally taxing. And I do see so many people in the crypto space attach their identity and their sense of self to a company or an investment they've made that that's done really well, like a protocol they got involved in, ecosystem they got involved in early on that has, you know, changed their their life. Um, and I think that's really dangerous. Anytime you start to attach your identity to things outside of yourself, I think that's setting yourself up for disappointment inevitably. You know, it's always interesting to see in these cycles. I think right now people are going through like the, these waves of emotion, but um, so much around what we're doing, what we're doing in crypto is around sort of mimetic transmission, right? We're turning memes in, into money, but then we're also creating these cults of belonging, these cults of personality, these cults of belief. And I think that's just um it's a challenging space to operate in because just as quickly as those cults can create positive momentum and like lift people up and propel an ecosystem forward, they can turn negative equally quickly. And, and we've seen that time and time again. So I'd, I do worry about people in this space, about their mental health. Um, <laughs> again, we see this every cycle. And so I do spend a lot of time managing my own mental state, keeping my own ego in check and like remembering, you know, 90% of our success is being in the right place at the right time. And then luck is really, you know, when preparation meets right place, right time. So we have to keep doing the work. I think the challenge is, I think in these cycles, a lot of people stop doing the work. And when I say doing the work, I mean, what we do has to have intellectual rigor and an analytical sort of empirical evidence-driven basis, right? Um, at the end of the day, like the world is filled with observable phenomena and it's our role to observe those phenomena, right? And to attempt to understand relationships between different factors and use that to inform our, our thinking, our investing, our, our approach to what we do. It influences our ability to be successful, whatever our aim is, whether that's developing and shipping a successful L1 or running an investment fund or creating a successful NFT ecosystem, like there isn't a certain amount of work that has to be done. And where I start to get concerned is when I have conversations with people and they're not doing the work, there isn't actually any intellectual grounding or understanding. And that doesn't mean it has to be a formal education. It doesn't mean you need like 
pieces of paper degrees, as, as we call them. That's not what I mean. But there has to be sort of a, a analytical, intellectually driven approach to, to what you're doing. And what I worry about is I talk to a lot of people who have zero grounding in any sort of objective reality and have zero basis or sort of zero intellectual basis on which to articulate their view of the world, to articulate their thesis, to articulate the value proposition of what they're, they're trying to build. And I think that's challenging. It's challenging for that to be sustained <laughs> long term. <laughs> I think if you've been in crypto for eight years, that means you're on your eighth or third cycle, I believe, uh, your third bull market, bear market cycle. And you talked about how um, separating your identity from like a blockchain or separating your identity from the company that you work for is uh, probably helps you navigate that. And, you know, removing yourselves from perhaps from the ebbs and flows of a bull and bear market allows you to maintain some sort of sanity. But also at the same time, I think that's the less frequent case for people in the industry. Like most people come in with some particular route. They came in through Bitcoin, they came in through Ethereum, they came in through NFTs, and then that's their brand. That's their thing. Yeah. Would you say that like having that like removal of your ego from particular like blockchains or companies or projects is what has enabled you to maintain your presence in the industry for three cycles? Because every single cycle bucks people off. Like usually people get yeah. bucked off by their first cycle and then they usually get bucked <laughs> off by their second cycle. And very few people have made it to three cycles. Would you credit like that sort of just like removal from uh, some sort of just like material attachment to some aspect of the industry is why you've been able to survive for so long? Yeah, I think that's one important component of it. And to be very fair, I did make that mistake myself. I attached my identity like very much to what we built at, at DCG and um, you know, at the end of the day, that wasn't my company and that <laughs> became very clear to me. Um, and that was challenging and, and an important learning sort of moment for, for me. I think the second piece is it's really important to be willing to admit that you were wrong and to be willing to change your mind. I think one of the things I know for sure is that the arc of time, right? A, it's very long. And over the arc of time, like there are periods over which you will be proven right and periods over which you'll be proven wrong. And um, I think it's important to have a perspective and to be willing to articulate that perspective and put yourself out there. I think it's a really important test for yourself to develop conviction, whether that's around a specific investment thesis or a vision for what the ecosystem will look like in the, in the future. And there are very few people today who I think are willing, just in the world in general, right, who are willing to like have a perspective, have a view and to articulate it in the public sphere. Most people try to walk this line of like not being about anything. And I'm like, what's the, what's the fucking point? Like, what are we doing here? I think it's important to have a perspective, but it's also important to be able to admit when you're wrong and to change your mind and to cha change your perspective. So I'll be very honest. I was wrong about Ethereum. I have no issue saying that. I have no issue admitting that. And I look at that and I'm like, okay, why did I miss this? Why was I wrong about this? I've identified like things I need to shift in my mental model. And I think a big one is just being intellectually flexible. And as you're presented with evidence and data, right? Change your worldview. Like no one's going to be hundred percent right about everything. <laughs> if you were, you know, that'd be a very sad world to live in. But, um, I think, you know, develop perspective. Don't be afraid to articulate that perspective. Putting that perspective out there is like a magnet. It attracts like-minded people to you and also people who are going to challenge your view. Right. And I love it when people challenge my view because it forces me to examine my thinking. Sometimes the data they bring or the, the evidence they bring is relevant and changes my mind. Sometimes it, it doesn't. But even being able to have the conversation without getting emotionally heated about it is like an important sign that you've been able to detach your identity 
from your your perspectives and then allowing yourself the grace of being like, okay, you were wrong about this. And it's, it's okay to be wrong. I've been wrong about many things. I've also been right about many things. And so being able to adapt and I think to change your perspective and then not being afraid to articulate that in public sphere, I think is a huge part of why some people, I think, continue to grow and evolve with the industry and others maybe don't because they get very locked into a very specific vision. It becomes a core part of their identity. And then they have challenges evolving beyond that because their whole personalities is tied up in this very specific worldview. Right. And I think in some ways, Bitcoin has, has become that way. Like there is a whole cohort of people out there who believe that Bitcoin exists in isolation and exists in this echo chamber. And I'm like, that's, you know, just looking at the evidence out there, I think that worldview is no longer one that is necessarily like supported by the evidence around you. And um, I think for a lot of people, we saw this recently actually with the BSV community, right? People don't even know, probably people who listen to this probably don't even know what BSV is. So I'll we just don't take talk a- about BSV a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll just take a, a moment and articulate like what's happened here, because I think it's a helpful illustrative point. So um, Bitcoin block size wars, Bitcoin basically split into two. And I kind of think of it like the schism that happened in the church, right, where you had the Catholic church. Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, so he uh, like branched off and uh, the Protestant church became a thing. So he had this schism, right, like between Catholics and Protestants. And I'm not a history buff, so I'm probably overly simplifying. But effectively, there was a schism in Christianity, and there are now two dominant branches who had similar beliefs, but the implementation of those beliefs was different, right? So Bitcoin, same thing, two cohorts of people fundamental agreement on sort of white paper differences in in vision. So there is Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin Cash, and then this thing emerged called BSV or Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, which was all about making Bitcoin. I'm I'm not sure. I like I wish I was joking. It was highly relevant at the time. And BSV or Bitcoin Satoshi's vision was all about Bitcoin for payments and like really big block size and lots of blocks so you could do a lot of, of payments. There was a whole community of people who sort of went off in this direction where like, this is Satoshi's original vision. We need to build BSV, put all their cash, sold all their Bitcoin, sold all the other forks of Bitcoin, went hard into BSV, and BSV basically (laughs) fell off a cliff. I think for those people, um, one of them, like last month came out, he was like, you know, I went so hard, like emotionally, psychologically, financially into BSV. It's ruined my life. It's ruined my family's life. Like, I don't know how I'm going to recover from this. And it was really sad in a in a way. But people get, I think, trapped in these mental models or these views of themselves that are very narrowly defined by a specific ideology they had at a specific point in time. Like the world is not a static place. The world is a very dynamic, ever-evolving place. Change is the only constant. You know, I feel bad for people who feel trapped in in whatever identity they create around themselves. And it'll be interesting to see, honestly, what happens with like a lot of the NFT influencers we see whose domain expertise and whose relevance is like limited to pumping specific NFT collections. They're paid to, to pump. Again, not a criticism. That's that's a business model for sure. But it'll be interesting to see like what they pivot to next and are they able to move beyond NFTs or do they sort of stay in this narrowly defined thing that's become their their identity. But, you know, I certainly don't think 10,000 PFP collections are the path forward for, for NFTs. 
you said um, you were wrong about Ethereum, and and there was a moment in time in the crypto industry where you know Ethereum was like, from what I've gathered, I wasn't here at this point in time. From what I gathered, Ethereum was like the contrarian bet. When you say you were wrong about Ethereum, were you wrong about Ethereum because you had your own independent internal beliefs about it that were wrong, or was it like the climate and the environment of the whole entire industry at the time that you were a part of? that really like guided what you believed about Ethereum? Because, you know, if during the phase of 2014 to 2016, part of crypto, when Ethereum was really getting off the ground, it was basically Bitcoiners. And, you know, Bitcoiners generally don't really like Ethereum. So can you like parse apart how much was like your belief and how much was like the general entire belief of the industry? Are those like separate? No, I think those are one and the same. And again, I think at that point in time, I was still, so the firm I was at, DCG, was very anti-Ethereum, a very pro-Ethereum classic, which is like, looking back, was a preposterous <laughs> perspective. Um, so part of it was the firm I was at. Part of it was the industry itself, the community of people. And honestly, I think the other piece was I was still so focused on Bitcoin because there was so much happening with Bitcoin at the time that I didn't really dedicate a ton of time to Ethereum. I will say in 2017, I started spending more time on Ethereum. I started investing in Ethereum, luckily. <laughs> so, you know, it worked out okay. I think the, the group of Bitcoiners that like are... Bitcoin only and no Ethereum. I actually think that's a very vocal minority, like extremely vocal, but I do think that is a growing minority. And honestly, I do worry at this point about Bitcoin's culture. I think there are elements of Bitcoin's culture that are extremely unappealing and are extremely concerning to me as a longtime Bitcoiner and someone who really does believe in like Bitcoin's very unique value proposition as not just store of value, but a medium of exchange and a layer for public blockchain innovation is really concerning to me. I think it really turns people off. I think we start to see that now in Ethereum as well, right? Like there are now Ethereum maximalists, which I think is Never did I think I would say those words, but they're definitely <laughs> Ethereum maximalists. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I think there is, and this is where I think one of the areas I've been really interested in lately is um, religion, divinity, and sort of what cults or belief systems in a more technocratic society look like. You know, I jokingly like to say that I'm I'm going to start a cult, and then I realize I'm already in like several cults. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but there is this really interesting movement, and we talked about this a bit when you and I hung out last time in person. Like the largest spiritual movement in the world isn't an organized religion; it's the spiritual but not religious movement. Around forty percent of Americans belong to this; they identify spiritual but not religious. But this affiliation. It doesn't have any formal identity. It's it's not organized. I think for a lot of people who are spiritual but not religious, for a lot of people who don't have a specific sort of spiritual practice they prescribe to, crypto actually has become a form of spirituality, which sounds a little bit <laughs> crazy. But I do think for many people, uh, crypto and in particular, like whatever specific blockchain or ecosystem they have an affinity with um, does become, in many ways, a belief system. There are components of mysticism and esotericism in, in crypto. Like if you look at Satoshi, if you look at the cult of personality around Vitalik in, in Ethereum and the way people look at what he writes as though it's, it's scripture, um, the way, you know, people look at <laughs> decrees from Charles Hoskinson and the Cardano ecosystem, the same way like we looked at Papal Bull 
probably in the 1100s, you know, when the world still was by and large um, in grips of, of Catholicism. So it is interesting to observe uh, these elements of sort of organized belief systems that are emergent in crypto and really all meaning, right? If we sort of take a step back and, you know, I like to get esoteric, but if we look at um, Baudrillard, right, who wrote a great book called Simulacra and Simulation, it's basically around like how we as humans make meaning and construct our reality. All meaning, sort of all reality, all identity is based on symbols, icons, and memes effectively, right? This is how we sort of transmit who we are. Um, we teach this to our, our friends. It's, it's omnipresent in the way we conduct ourselves. It's present in the way we communicate, in the way we dress, the way we present ourselves, now the way we, we behave online, right? I think NFT is like the PFP shoes says a lot about you. <laughs> it, it's, it's become your identity. I always love that pudgy penguin. I don't know if it was a parody, but like that Twitter spaces where someone's talking about their pudgy penguin, they're crying and they're like, I am my penguin and my penguin <laughs> is me. I was like, this is... Exactly what we're doing. This is exactly mm -hmm. what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. But I do think it, it's really interesting to start to see with DAOs and these NFT communities and Web3 communities, how people are starting to imbue these groups of people who believe in things with organization, with financial capital, with like community governance tools and infrastructure is still very nascent. And that whole stack is extremely underdeveloped, like very piecemeal approach, very challenging to navigate still. But I think it is really interesting to see, like, as we start building these tools and as we start seeing this infrastructure, the fact that the, these communities are day one imbued with an enormous amount of financial capital, but then also have a tremendous amount of social capital in the form of, like, online personalities who have a reach that's much larger than any traditional media outlet, right? And then you think about the human capital, because you can work anywhere, anyone around the world can contribute to these communities, that starts to become a really powerful force that can radically reshape society and how we think about power and influence in our in our world today. Well, I'm so glad you brought this up because if you didn't, I was definitely going to right after you you brought up about uh, the block size wars and how it felt like a schism between like the church and the like. I think as the world becomes more trends towards more and more atheist, that we've seen this trend for the last like 20 years. My general gist is that as the world gets more and more atheist, it actually creates more and more demand for some sort of alternative, not some ancient religion, but some new source of, like you said, spirituality, some new source of affinity. And not only is the world trending towards more and more atheism, but it's also trending towards more and more loneliness, especially with COVID, where people are like stuck inside, they're learning how to be on their computers for 16 hours a day. And all of a sudden we have these like new like techno religions around some sort of like shared set of values and vibes. And, and you talked about like the guy that fell in love with BSV and he put not only his identity, but his financial capital and like the capital of people around him into BSV. And it's very, very cult-like, like you can hear the same story with other cults, like normal cults that you would see on some sort of like Netflix, like movie or something. Sure. <laughs> now we have all of the cults, right? Like a DAO is a new cult, like an NFT profile picture is a new cult, like blockchains themselves are new cults. And like rendering yourself immune from the, in a pull of one of these things is really, really hard. And like, I find myself in it as well. Like, you know, I kind of really align with the particular values of Ethereum and I can't really figure out how to get my headspace out of that just because none of the other cults I found out there resonate with me all that much. Uh, and so I find myself very, very comfy 
in this particular flavor of spiritualism, which is the, the values that I see embodied by Ethereum. And I'm wondering what you see as like the long-term trajectory of this thing. Is this like part of just like the bootstrapping of this industry or is this kind of the new status quo moving forward into the digital age? Yeah. So I've actually been doing some research on this and I'm going to be giving some talks over the next few months. So what I think is really interesting, right? When we talk about occults in this sense, I'm not just talking about crypto, right? If we look at the top 10 companies in the world by market capitalization, right? The largest companies, and I do think companies are incredibly powerful. I think brands are incredibly powerful. And we've sort of, if, if I may, again, I'm going to take a little detour, like a historical detour. If we look at what defined power, right, and where influence came from, it used to be that influence came from empire, right? And these were monastic, legacy-driven empires, right? And typically, they were patriarchies, right? So we had the age of empires. Uh, then emerged organized religion, and we saw the age of a new empire, the age of religion, right, where the church was the most powerful entity. And then that started to splinter and fracture. And then we entered the age of the nation state, right? And nation states became the dominant forces. And that was probably around like the start of the industrial age. Then in the mid nineties after World War II, right? And we saw the splintering of, of nation states. We started to see the emergence of corporation states, right? And this new, more, more savage form of worship, which was capitalism. And if we look at where we are today, we still live in the world of the corporation state, but something new is is emerging. We can see it and we can, we can feel it. And I think a lot of it's being driven by what's happening in our, you know, little sliver of reality, <laughs> the little, you know, segment that that we live in, but it's present in a lot of different places as well. And this new age, like we're sort of in the age of the influencer, but we've moved beyond that into the age of these increasingly small and specific communities that congregate both online and, and in real life. But like the these little pockets of society that used to be difficult to find are now becoming the norm and becoming very mainstream. And I think QAnon was a, a part of that, right? Like that whole thing was insane from the outside but to people who are in it like for them it was very real and it grew very quickly and it was very powerful and so this new age um there's sort of a new power struggle there's nation states there's corporation and i think nation states are on the decline their influence is on the decline their relevance is really on the decline and what we're seeing is like these grasps for power from an institution that realizes that it is no longer really relevant at all. Corporation states still highly relevant. And I did this interesting analysis where I looked at the top 10 companies by market capitalization. So I'm just going to run through them. Apple. Does Apple have cult status? Yes or no? Uh, certainly. Yeah. hundred percent does. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Apple is a cult. I'm surrounded by Apple products right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in the cult of Apple as, as well. Um, but even going to their stores, right? It feels like you're going to, to church. Mm. Like there is mm -hmm. a religious element. It's like sparse. It's clean. It's very specific aesthetic. Apple cult. Um, second largest company, Saudi Aramco. Cult status, company itself low, oil high, right? Mm -hmm. Our world runs on oil. It's a company that is tapping into the power of the cult, which is the resource. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Microsoft, third largest cult status. We Weaker than Apple. Kind of a shitty cult, Definitely. but still a cult. But for worker bees and mm. knowledge mm -hmm. workers, right? For people who work in corporate America, right. life. Yep. They yep. live their life inside of Microsoft Office and inside of Windows. Mm -hmm. 
still the largest OS in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Crazy, but true. Uh, cult of Microsoft is, is strong. Alphabet slash Google, cult. Amazon, yeah. cult. Yeah. Tesla, definitely a cult. Berkshire Hathaway, <laughs> 100% absolutely a cult. People go on a pilgrimage to the middle of nowhere, to Omaha, Nebraska, to pay homage to their Lord and Savior, Warren Buffett, like Berkshire Hathaway is the craziest cult I've probably ever seen. It's a finance cult, like wild. Um, NVIDIA, not a cult yet, but powers cults because all cults, all metaverses need GPUs for rendering. And that's the game NVIDIA's in. I would say that AMD, which is NVIDIA's competitor, Definitely a cult. There's cult following behind AMDs. Yeah, we stand for Lisa Sue. She's a baddie. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Sadly, AMD is not in the top 10 yet. Uh, Meta, definitely a cult. But I think Meta is oh, one yeah. of those companies that's a really crappy cult, right? Like, it's a cult in the sense that people love to hate Facebook, which is really fascinating. Yet we still use Facebook products every day. Also a platform for other cults. Absolutely true. Correct. And then last is is TSMC. Again, semiconductors, it's the input that you need to, to have a successful online cult. Okay, so all of these top companies in the world, right, have an element of cult status or affiliated with things that have cult status. And then lastly, if we look at what we're doing in crypto, like we are effectively developing communities that act like like cults. And I think the way you described it before, it's not necessarily atheism. I actually think it's it's slightly different. Um it's what is it called? Not you're not atheist, you're agnostic. Sorry. It means that you haven't chosen a specific belief system, but you believe in spirituality. I think atheists, like atheist is someone like my dad who's a scientist and he's like, I only believe things if they're like mathematically verifiable. And maybe in a way, Bitcoiners are the atheists of the crypto space. They're like your weird atheist uncle. Isn't that a cult of a different form though? (laughs) Absolutely. It's a cult of science? Yes. It's a cult of irrationality, which in and of itself like has been perverted, right? The cult of science, the cult of knowledge has been perverted into something completely dysfunctional as we see with like modern academia. But we're creating these like really interesting communities and they're becoming increasingly esoteric, right? Bitcoin, large community, Ethereum, large community, like top 50 coins by market cap, large communities. But there are some long tail coins out there that have like really, there's a whole Dash community out there. I don't know if people remember Dash. There's a whole, I'm showing my crypto age, crypto grandma over here talking about BSV Dash. Dash. (laughs) You can talk about Dash masternodes, like... There is a whole community of Dash loyalists out there. It's crazy. So there are these really interesting behaviors that are emerging. And again, I think what's going to be really powerful is as we move out of this age of nation states, out of this age of corporation states and unbridled capitalism into this age of capital imbued with purpose and community, what will that look like is the question I'm really interested in, really excited about. So I'm going to be giving a series of, I'm doing research right now. So if anyone has anything they want to share, I'm reading a lot of Marshall Luhan, obviously, but all recommendations are welcome. If anyone wants to riff on the topic, drop me a DM on Twitter. Happy to do that. I'm going to be giving a series of talks over the next few months, starting in June on the topic, and then hosting a workshop in the summer and in the fall on it, and then hopefully be doing some, some more writing about it. But I'm excited about the future of of cults, tooling, infrastructure that we can utilize to help people 
in a build cults and communities in an open source manner and make them interoperable. But imagine if we could have these small pockets of people that congregate in physical space that pool and share resources, right? That use all this open source tooling and infrastructure to manage their local communities, both physically and digitally. And that these small sects or cells are then interoperable and communicate and transact with one another because they're on the same underlying infrastructure, which is public blockchain. Like all of a sudden, what you start to see is the emergence of this really powerful sort of organic organism that's almost mycelial in nature, where you have these individual hubs or, or cells that have their own unique belief system or their own unique values but there's universal sort of compatibility in this, this broader network. I think that is incredibly powerful socially. I think that's incredibly powerful economically. And I think that is what we're starting to see. It's not unique to just crypto and crypto is not the only tool in our, our toolkit, but I think it's an important component of what the future might look like as people start to dissociate their identity from where they were born, what passport they hold, the religion they belong to or their parents belong to, what they do for an occupation, what products they consume, right? We no longer identify ourselves that way at all. Like when's the last time you went to a crypto event and you knew anyone's nationality or anyone's religion? We just don't talk about it. Right. So that's what's really exciting to me. There's like this really big shift that's underway. We're not talking about it. And so what if we were to give it an identity? What if we were to sort of put more structure around it? What would that enable people to do? I don't know, but we're going to find out. So yeah, this is super wild. And I I think we can get even more wild here. You talked about the trajectory of like cult organizations over time, starting with like the empire turning into the church, turning into the nation state, turning into the corporation to kind of where we are now with crypto. And I, I think the trajectory is more and more cults over time. Like how many empires can the world really support? Three, four, and then religions, it gets larger with more and more denominations. And then, you know, countries and nation states, there's a lot of those. There's like 150, 180 nation states. But then there's corporations and there's more than I can count number of corporations. And now with crypto, there's like one cult per token, right? There's one community per token. And we also see this outside of crypto, right? Where like every single subreddit is kind of its own community, its own cult. And I think we might be conflating the word community and cult, but we'll come back to that later. Um, and so like- <laughs> I, I'm using cult here. People have a negative connotation of cult, sorry, right. just to, to identify the term. Mm-hmm. When I say cult, community is probably a, a good word, but I think community is not strong enough, right? Mm. The community is like something you belong to. A cult is something where you have to go through right of initiation, where you prove your loyalty to the group in a very public way. I think in crypto, we do that, right? If you're like part of an NFT community, you make that NFT your PFP. Or if you're part of Ethereum, you put like the .eth, or if you're a Bitcoiner, you put the Lightning Network, like the emoji on your Twitter handle. Exactly, or you put like a hashtag Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. yeah, or you get like a Bitcoin tattoo. So I think there is this very cult-like component where there's like a very public display of your affinity to that group, and there are escalating levels of commitment. Yeah, like a concentric circle of like more and more like extremism. Yeah, exactly. Right. Something that uh, Chris Berniski implanted into my brain is that he thinks like crypto offers like the foundation for economic viability of culture, as in if a culture is economically viable, crypto can enable it to be so. And so we're like we're going from like empires of like three to four major global empires to like, you know, 50 religions to 200 countries to 20,000 corporations to 200,000 like tokens. And like my optimistic take on this is that for every single new community slash cult that's out there, 
the reason why they exist at all is because they allow for a higher fidelity representation of the desires of the humans that compose them. And so like human interests can span so many different domains, uh, whether it's, I don't know, like, you know, rock climbing comes to mind or finance or like pick your domain of interest. And now that we have like many, many more cults and more niche cults, cults that are answering to the long tail of human interests, we are actually producing like online organizations that represent human interests with higher fidelity just because we can have uh, more granular cults because of the technology that we enable it. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that mainly? Yeah, I, I like that concept. I think the only thing I struggle with, and again, it's probably a syntax thing, is what does culture mean? Like to me, culture is kind of challenging to define or disambiguate from religion in a way. And again, here, I think the challenge is like, language is so tricky because we're trying to use language that we haven't yet created to describe something that we all feel and sense, but like putting the words to that feeling is is difficult. This is why cri- the crypto industry has its own language. Like people come in from the outside and they're like, you guys speak differently. And I'm like, yeah, we know. <laughs> but I, I think again, if we think about how humans construct meaning, right, it's through language. And if we think about language, right, I've always, I don't know, it's like when I get weird, this is what I think about, right? Um, we use words to try to simplify and communicate things universally, but like the, what's the word for this? It's water, right? But there are so many different ways I can experience water. Like when I take a sip of water and then you're really thirsty, it's like refreshing. It like makes you feel alive. It's like an incredible feeling. Swimming in water is totally different. Like the word water does not capture all of the different ways in which we as humans can experience water. Right. I also think English, I did not grow up speaking English. I grew up speaking Dutch and Turkish, but growing up speaking other languages where language is very like linguistically, Turkish is very uh, different. I would say Dutch is very similar to to English. Turkish is very different. It's very expressive language. Language is really limiting, right? Because we have these very seemingly simple words that describe radically different feelings and emotions, right? That's why I like languages where there are like multiple words for the same thing, but describe the different ways you can experience that thing. I'm like, this is what we need. And also I think in the crypto space, we're really good at co-opting language. We'll take words that mean one thing and we'll like twist them to mean another thing. But I think again, the way we construct meaning, it's through symbols, right? Through visuals, it's through actions, um, it's through words and, and language, but it's really limited still. And now we've added a a sort of new aspect to it, which is like your on-chain activity. What you do on-chain is also part of of who you are now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Are you familiar with, I think he's a philosopher, but also an author, Ernest Becker, and his book, The Denial of Death? No, I haven't read it. Yeah. So the, the gist is that humans have this incentive to contribute to symbols because we all know that we are all going to die, but we don't really want to wake up and think about that fact. So we repress that and put it back into the back of our minds. But this incentive to not die comes out in our commitment towards something that's bigger than ourselves. And so we're going back to the conversation of like people that are re- members of a religion or people that participate in governments or people that build a corporation or people that help promote their preferred 
L1 or their preferred community. We all know we're mortal, but we work towards these symbols that we believe are going to outlast us in an attempt to achieve immortality, right? Like Ethereum, the blockchain is going to continue to append blocks long beyond my life here. And so I can achieve some semblance of immortality by like helping it do that. And there's always this like incentive to be a part of the winning team, whether that winning team is like a religion or a winning team. It's literally a sports team. Like sports team is another like thing that is greater than oneself. That it's another cult. Yes. But what you're alluding to here is very important, which Mm -hmm. is why I think religion is like the best cult of all Mm -hmm. and also sports. There has to be intergenerational product market fit. Right. Mm, Which I think mm -hmm. speaks to this like defying death idea, speaks to this legacy idea is there has to be belief that by contributing to this, like you are extending your legacy beyond your, Mm -hmm. your lifespan. Right. Again, going back to that poor BSV guy that put all of his resources into a symbol that died, like this is the consequences of picking a losing team. And as all of these like cults of the world spin up in many, many different ways, some of them die off and some of them win. But we all can also see this like in global politics where You know, China didn't side with Russia because they saw that as like aligning with a losing team, right? Like they need to preserve the symbol of China by aligning with the winning team. Uh, And this can also work its way into like nationalism, right? Like one of the large reason, a large reason as to why like Nazism actually took place in Germany is because a lot of people saw them as really powerful and didn't want to be on the losing side. Uh, And so they just picked this weird cult that, you know, had power for, for a meaning of time. And, and I think this is why this partly answers the question as to why so many in the crypto industry always find some tribe to be a part of, because we like camaraderie, but we also want to be a part of a winning team. But let's loop that back again to sort of where we started this conversation, which is it's very important, I think, especially in a community like crypto that's so driven by memes and and trends and these phenomena, some of which can be very ephemeral in nature and some of which have permanence. I think it's, again, very important to develop a perspective that is uniquely yours and to behave in a way that is consistent with, with your perspective. And I think the challenge is when people are unclear what they are about or why they're here, or what they're interested in or what they're trying to, to do with like the limited time we have here then it becomes very challenging to identify which group to align with. Then you end up chasing the trend, right? And you become part of a larger herd. I think, again, having a unique perspective and having a perspective that is leverages your experiences, your strengths, your insights in a unique way, and then being consistent with it, articulating it consistently, defending that viewpoint consistently becomes a very important part of like maintaining an identity that is independent of and not attached to any one single cult. And I think the great thing is cults of belief and like cults of belonging are highly scalable because most of them don't demand complete loyalty, right? Empire demanded complete loyalty. Religion demanded complete loyalty. I can't be Christian and Jewish, right? Uh, nationality used to depend depend on complete loyalty. Now, you know, I have three passports, so that's no longer the, the case. And the great thing is in, in Web3, you can belong to so many different groups, right? I just think of the number of DAOs I'm a part of, it like makes my head hurt. Some of them I have a very low level of commitment. Some of them I have a higher level of commitment. But the fact that we can now scale and go from belonging to just a handful of groups to belonging to thousands of groups, and those groups can evolve and change and merge and split over time, I think it allows people so much more expressivity around like 
how they think about their belonging to these these different groups. And maybe the next age is the age of, of cults and everything becomes a, a cult. I'm in the cult of Apple. I'm in the cult of Bitcoin. I'm definitely in the the cult of oil. I'm in the cult of semiconductors. Mm-hmm. I'm in a I'm in a lot of different <laughs> communities, cults, whatever you want to call them. And again, some of them require very high levels of commitment, and others much much less so. Um, but at their core, I think for communities, cults, whatever you want to call them, these organizations, these entities, these organisms to be viable, you have to have a core group of people that's deeply committed. Yes, you need the center of the concentric circle. You need the hardliners to always oh, like embody yeah. the cult, right? Meltem, I think you would be a fantastic cult leader. If you are not going to <laughs> particularly identify with one particular cult, maybe you should start one yourself because I would join that cult. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the cult I'm in right now um, and what I feel really passionate about, I think one thing we tend to forget is that we have direct control over the reality that we live in. And I think... Um, Nowhere is a better example than than Bitcoin, right? When I started working in Bitcoin, Bitcoin was this fringe esoteric idea. So I would talk to people about it and they'd be like, what's wrong with you? Like, <laughs> why are you like this? And I'd be like, no, 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 trust me. No, like you wouldn't believe it sounds so silly now, but in 2015, I was in grad school, I was at MIT, I was graduating my background. Like I had a quote unquote successful career. Like I was a good little corporate person. I'd, I'd done very well. I'd done well in grad school. I had all these job offers to go to great companies. Um, and I was like, no, nah, I'm going to go do the Bitcoin thing. And everyone's like, what What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> They're like, why are you like this? <laughs> you were defecting from one cult for another. Oh, 100% is the best decision I've ever made. But, um, you know, people forget how much has changed in the world. Like, Crypto and Bitcoin in particular is a very non-consensus thing, even as little as five years ago. It has now become a more consensus thing. It has become very socially acceptable. It's become cool. Like we're cool now. This was not this was never cool. <laughs> but I say it was not cool. Like I would go to events. I remember I went to my one-year grad school reunion. And everyone was like, do not talk to her. She works in Bitcoin. She's weird. She's going to talk to you about Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) One of us. (laughs) People forget how much has changed, um, which I think is interesting. But we do very much influence and create the reality we live in. So the reality I lived in seven years ago, Bitcoin was not a part of that reality. The reality I live in now, what we've done with the hundreds of thousands of people who've worked on Bitcoin, worked in Bitcoin, and been out there, like putting their names, their faces, their reputations on the line and going out there and advocating for Bitcoin, educating about Bitcoin, talking about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is now a globally recognized asset. It is held by some of the world's largest financial institutions who now trade in it. Like it has crossed the chasm, in my view, from a cultural, financial, sort of technology perspective, it has crossed the chasm. We made that reality. It didn't happen magically. There was a group of people who dedicated a lot of their time and energy into making that reality. And we did that. You pushed the boulder up the hill. Exactly. We're doing the same thing now with other elements of what's happening in crypto, Web3. But we are directly responsible for the experience that we have of reality. And there are people who accept reality as it is. And there are people who envision different reality and then work to make it happen. And there's a great book, speaking of a book, since you recommended a great one for me, it's called Finite and Infinite Games by James Kars. And it's basically about this, this philosophy, right? We're in a finite game. There is a specific objective and your mission is to reach the objective at any cost. And then the game ends. In an infinite game, 
there's no objective other than to keep playing the game. And so as you play, the game evolves. Your role in the game evolves, right? And the idea is there's sort of these like levels of awareness in the game that you move through. And to me, the one thing I keep thinking about is like the objective for me is to get as close as I can to creating the reality that I want to live in and that I want other people to live in. And what I love about crypto is that as an industry, I do think that we are inherently optimistic. We're inherently optimistic about human nature, as we see from like the very flawed designs that we implement. We're inherently optimistic in, about human nature. We're inherently optimistic about what people can achieve if they work together. We're inherently optimistic about our ability to impact reality and the structure of the world, right? And we, we have to be. And so I'm actually really excited about getting people to believe in their own power and their own ability to change the trajectory of the future, but also to change their own experience of, of reality. And so when we talk about vibes, right? And like, I like throwing these, these fun, interesting events that bring a weird mix of people together. It's like, we need to remind people that magic is, is real. When I say magic, I don't mean like woo woo magic. I mean, these transcendental like moments where you feel just an amazing connection to a room full of total strangers. And you can feel this on Twitter spaces. You can feel this at a conference. You can feel this at a rave. You can feel this at a, a show. There are a lot of different ways that we as humans like create these experiences. But I think in crypto, sometimes what's lacking, we get so like in the weeds and like the technical details. We get so obsessed with our own little tribe that we forget as a whole, like our objective is to convince other people. Like the, the core selling point of Bitcoin was never like, hey, buy Bitcoin because it's going to make you rich. The core premise of Bitcoin was like, get involved in Bitcoin because we can change the trajectory of the future to not be so grim and fucked up. And so I think we just sometimes have to remind ourselves that there's like a bigger sort of unified objective, no matter what little tribe or sect of crypto you belong to. Like we all are sort of aligned in this idea that we can change the trajectory of the future. We can bend the arc of reality. We may not necessarily all agree on what that should look like, but just the belief that we can do that is incredibly powerful. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that. Sounds crazy. <laughs> Maybe to the listener, but not to me. I'm definitely on board this train. Melton, as you've gone through the ebbs and flows of the crypto industry, you've been here for eight years. I've been here for like four or five. But when I first got started in crypto, I wasn't like going out to conferences. I wasn't like meeting people in real life. I was still kind of just like in my head's down face. And so this is kind of what I want to pick your brain about next is how the social life of crypto has adapted and evolved. What I've been saying to people, and I want to check with you if this is true, is that like really the social culture, the in real life social culture of crypto wasn't at all defined up until post-COVID, up until 2021. And just because like, yeah, we had the bull market of 2017 to early 2018, but that was like defined by ICOs. And I'm not really sure how much like in real life crypto socialization there was. And so my gut take about like crypto social life is that it really just came about starting in Manhattan, starting in New York in like the end of 2020 and early 2021. Would you agree with that? No, absolutely not. Uh oh, oh okay. Where did it begin? Um, it began, I would say in like 2013 with the Bitcoin conferences. And back then the group was small. There were maybe like three, 400 people you'd see at these things. Um, the scaling Bitcoin conferences were like 500 to 750 people. But the energy there was like absolutely electric. All the people you wanted to, to see were there. Then it became like the Bitcoin meetups. So the Socratic meetup in New York was, was huge. 
that's, you know, shout out to Jonathan Mohan, um, who ran the New York Bitcoin meetup. Like those were huge. Those were really formative part of my early years in, in Bitcoin was the weekly meetups. Also, we were all really poor and they would have pizza <laughs> and sometimes beer. And so I was like, yay, like this is my dinner on Wednesday night because I'm <laughs> broke. <laughs> Great. No. I just finished grad school, um, and I, I'm, I work in Bitcoin, and I'm, I'm poor. I'm also nice to meet you. <laughs> great. No, it's it great. But there was such a strong sense of community, and um, these people became my friends. Like, it's really funny. I don't think I have that many non-crypto friends anymore, and I think it's really different when you go through these life experiences with people, when you are in the trenches with a group of people. And I've had, like, the the privilege of working with hundreds, if not a th- over a thousand different founders over the last eight years that I've been in this industry, going through those crazy highs and cr- crazy lows with people, not just in their startups, but also in the industry overall, it's a really special bond that you have. So there was a really vibrant crypto culture before the pandemic. I think post-pandemic, it accelerated because we have a lot more money and people actually started spending <laughs> that money. So I think that's what changed is like, we have more money. We have better taste. Like back in the day, we had bad taste. Now we can afford good party planners and we've developed some taste and some sense of aesthetic. There's also more people in this space who aren't just like purely devs or business people or finance people. Like the the introduction of NFTs and the art world and the music world and the fashion world, like more of the creative Domains into crypto has also, I think, radically changed the nature of of events and the look and feel of events. It's much higher production value. (laughs) So I would say post-COVID, like the influx of capital, people's willingness to spend that capital, as well as more people who come from the broader sort of world of culture coming into crypto has elevated the experience. But I would say that IRL sort of connection has always been such a strong part of crypto, even from the earliest days of of Bitcoin. And those events, like those meetups, they were really, I mean, it was like the who's who of crypto. I met the Chainlink founders seven years ago at a BitDevs meetup. They were running a company called Smart Contract Solutions and and seven years later, it's, it's chainling. It's like a lot of those relationships still persist. When I talk about like in real life crypto events, I always speak with such like high regard and I'm trying to get like out of my bias with it just because, you know, I had decently fun college days, high school days, not so fun, but I've never had as much fun as I've had with crypto people. And maybe that's just because I'm a crypto person and I like crypto. And so of course I want to talk to crypto people about crypto stuff. But also there's some properties about the nature of crypto people, as you said, like inherent optimism, inherent curiosity, big brain or big ideas than people that like to think. And I think that is really what is so infectious about in real life crypto culture that if, you know, the normies of the world end up at a crypto party, they also feel it is my assumption, even though I don't know if that's completely true. Uh, and, I think and, so. Yeah, I bring you think my so? normie friends around crypto people and they're like, that's the most epic experience I've ever had. All of these right. people are insane and beautiful, but I'm also very selective about mm. the vibe I curate. I definitely mm-hmm. think there's like crypto people that I don't want to hang out with. Sure. And most of the time, so I spent, I just spent a week in Jackson Hole and I invited like uh, 15 crypto people out 
And it was so funny. Everyone's from really different walks of life. Everyone knew maybe one or two people there, but no one other than me knew everyone there. And we were joking at the end of the trip. We were like, there were literally no bad seats. Like everyone's amazing. Everyone's super interesting. And we didn't even talk about crypto at all. Mm -hmm. We talked about life. We talked about philosophy. We talked about existentialism. Like one night we talked about music. We talked about a lot of different stuff that's sort of tangentially related to crypto, but it wasn't like, oh, let's nerd out. Right. But I think it's very important to curate like a good group of people around you and to expose yourself also to different ideas. I like hanging out with people who challenge me. I like hanging out with people who have a different worldview than me. Right. Cause it forces me to expand my, my thinking. I like it when I can disagree with someone. I think that's important. So I think um, you do find these amazing pockets of crypto. There's also really cringe pockets of crypto. Certainly. So I just, there are probably people <laughs> listening to this who are like, I have never had that experience you describe. My experience of crypto is like, especially as a woman going to an event, I'm like one of three women in a room full of like sweaty, weird dudes. <laughs> so, yeah. But I will say the one thing that has never changed, even in the early days of Bitcoin, I remember in like early 2015, I had a question about, was it about Lightning at the time, Lightning Network? And I DM'd someone and they immediately responded to me. We got on a phone call. We had a great conversation. Crypto is still the, the same. Like for people who are willing to do the work and who want to engage, I love the openness of crypto and like how willing people are regardless of what level they're at, right? Whether they're, you know, well-known crypto person that's been around for a long time versus newbie, like it doesn't matter when you got into the industry, who you are, what your quote unquote social status is. I do think there's like really incredible willingness of people to engage with each other, which I just absolutely love. And I think is really unique to the space. I see it disappearing a bit with like these mega funds and the corporatization of, of crypto, sure, sure. which makes me sad. Um, mm -hmm. But I do love that aspect of, of crypto culture. And I hope that continues to persist. Yeah, yeah, certainly. That's definitely something that I felt I think is missed along, missed by a lot of the newcomers that come into this industry. Something that I really value in this crypto industry is when you come into crypto and you start learning about it, as soon as you start to get your bearings and as soon as your questions turn from bad questions to good questions, like the difference between the entrance level of crypto and like the top of crypto, if we envision this thing as a hierarchy, it's actually not that much of a hierarchy. Like the distance between the bottom and the top is actually really collapsed, at least in comparison to like the traditional world, the traditional TradFi world, where like climbing the social structures of like Hollywood or New York or whatever social structures of the world is a grind. And sometimes you can spend your whole life and not really get anywhere. But in crypto, yeah. like it's really easy to tell, are you here for the right reasons? Are you a good person? Like crypto is very like, strips away the clothes from the emperor, right? Like it makes everyone kind of come in, just like lose their ego and it makes everything really transparent. And so like, if you are a person of the appropriate vibe and it becomes really easy to identify that amongst other people. Yeah. And so like climbing up like the social ladder of crypto, there's only like four or five rungs you have to climb before you're at the top because crypto is like still so in its early days. Would you agree with all that? Yeah. We're all just trying to catch a vibe at the end of the day. Right. Totally. <laughs> Yeah. This is why I like curating a vibe is really important. Mm -hmm. Like, but again, curating a vibe requires figuring out what you're about, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it requires you okay. having the confidence and like the ability to detach from your ego. Um, I do interact with a lot of people in this industry who are like easily triggered and they're easily upset and they're very delicate and you sort mm -hmm. of have to tiptoe around them and their ego. And like, I just, I can't with that. I'm like, just let it go. Eject. Eject. <laughs> let it, let it so go. So one thing I'm looking forward to, which I think is coming is like 
crypto people are inherently innovators, right? Like we all like to think and tinker and it's like, hey, does it have to be this way? It could be this way instead. And now that crypto has become insanely social with like NFTs and yeah. NFTs have really unlocked a part of the like the social culture around crypto that we've never had before. What I'm starting to see is crypto people kind of getting tired with the classic hire a DJ, find a club, put the DJ in the club, invite all the crypto people and have an ns, ns, ns party. Yeah. I think people are, are starting to think about like, how can we innovate on parties? Like, how can we innovate at the social layer? How can we innovate in to have like more vibes? Like, let's yeah. not just throw a like-minded people into the same room together. Let's actually like curate an experience. Yeah, go for it. Here's the thing. Here's what I can't stand about NFT events. You go to NFT events and I'm guilty of doing this. I've done this myself. You go to an NFT event and it's like a bunch of screens with mm -hmm. people's PFPs on them mm -hmm. and then like bad lighting, bad music, bad drinks. I'm like, let's do anything else. Right. I think some crypto events do a really good job. I've actually not been going to as many conferences lately just because I find the conferences really tiring and like i don't understand people who want to have meetings at a conference right. like i'm exhausted i'm overwhelmed i don't want to sit for 30 minutes and talk about business because i'm not going to be able to focus like this is not a productive place to have a meeting if you want to actually have a productive meeting like let's just do a call or like I have assume, a meeting in yeah. the city that we both live in but like right. don't ask this for is an... conference time yeah wow. but like i don't know if people are like oh yeah let's go to con this conference and like have hours of meetings with people. I'm like, wow, that makes no sense to right. me. That like defeats the purpose of going to a conference, which the whole point of going to an IRL event is to increase the probability of serendipitous meetings. Mm. It's like, why are you sitting in a meeting room for hours on end with people that you already know and already have a relationship with when you could be out like meeting a high volume of people very rapidly in a very compressed window of time? So if you ever try to have a meeting with me at a conference, respectfully, no, thank you. Because it's not productive. Like, why did I go to the conference right. to sit right. in a meeting room and talk to people I already know? Right. We can achieve these goals elsewhere. It's just not productive. Um, but I've actually stopped going to so many conferences. What I've started doing is going to smaller events. So I love these like weekend long, couple of days, week long events. I've hosted a couple of them. Where I just bring a bunch of people I really like or I'm really interested in together and we all shove ourselves into a container and we just vibe and see what comes out the other end. You and I went on a trip like this, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We just mm -hmm. like, we vibed for a couple of days. It was super fun. It was great. And some fantastic things came out, out of that weekend, including this podcast. Exactly. But also we would have never had that level of intimacy, that level of discussion um, and that level of friendship like at a party or at a conference. So I do think we need to invest in relationships and we also need to be very specific about like who you want to have relationships with, right? Because you can't have a relationship with everyone. So it's like, who do you want to spend time with? In what container? What do you want to get out of that time? For me, I don't necessarily need to have a specific objective, but having sort of a theme, right? So I want to do these workshops around the future of religion and what divinity looks like in a technology-driven society. And that'll be sort of the overarching theme, um, but you create a container, you get people together in it, and then you see what, what unfolds. You add a little bit of structure to it, but not a lot. And I think that's, to me, far more interesting, far more exciting. Meltem, as a veteran of the industry, as crypto grandma, what advice do you have <laughs> oh for the gosh. youngsters in the space who are coming in for their first or second year? What's really useful for you? My firm belief is like, it doesn't matter whether you're an hour into crypto or 10 years into crypto, like everyone is equally deserving of being here, being a part of this. So 
doesn't really matter. There are a lot of people who've been in crypto a very long time who have no goddamn sense, (laughs) 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 who I would not take advice from. And there are a lot of people who are like very new to crypto who have a lot to offer. So I think your tenure in the space is not indicative at all of like anything. You're equally capable, I think, of making contributions and playing a meaningful role um, regardless of of when you got into the space. So that should never deter people. Sometimes people are like, oh my God, I'm so new. Like, I don't know anything. I'm like, first of all, you know more than like most people because you're here. (laughs) And number two, doesn't matter. Like, whatever. My advice, honestly, the biggest thing is like, be about, figure out what you're about. Be about something. Don't do this thing that so many crypto people do where you're about absolutely fucking nothing. Be about something. Like, figure out what it is. Be about something. And then talk about it. Like, so many people are observers. Do something. Buying a coin is not doing something. Like, do something. Literally do anything. Do something. Do something that other people aren't doing? Is that the... No. It doesn't matter if other people are doing it. Do something. Like, put some skin in the game. Make some commitment. And then the second piece is, like, be willing to be wrong. I think a lot of people are afraid to be about something and to publicly articulate it because they're afraid of being wrong. You are going to be wrong about many things. You're going to be right about many things. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that you're still playing the game. But if you never get in the game, you can't play the game. So, like, do something. Be about something. And then talk about it. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with people on the internet. Lurking is one way to do it, but I don't know, get involved. There's a lot to be done and who knows what might happen if you like take that first step and what that might turn into. But I see so many people who are like just passive, passive passengers on this ride and that's just not going to cut it. Meltem, what about the current state of the world, including crypto or not including crypto, makes you <laughs> optimistic? Um... Honestly, it's tough some days. Um, What makes me optimistic? First of all, they can't put us all in jail. There's (laughs) not enough jails. They can try to build more, but somebody has to do stuff. So they can't put us all in jail. They might try, but they they just can't. So that's optimistic. Um, uh, Look, the world is run by incompetent buffoons i think we are seeing like how incompetent our institutions are which is accelerating this like tremendous power shift that we're we're living through and again what makes me optimistic is like we have seen single-handedly how powerful individuals and communities on the internet can be so that makes me really optimistic like if we could meme bitcoin into existence imagine what else we can do that's exciting Melton, thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts on Layer Zero. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. I'm excited that you're doing this show. Oh, it's great. It's my favorite show. It's uh, basically story time <laughs> with David for 90 minutes per episode. So I just get to listen and, and hear what people really care about, which is always exciting. I love it. Well, to anyone who's listening, feel free to drop me comments um, at melt underscore dem on Twitter. If you want to talk about cults, religion, drop me a note, suggestions on things to look at, things to read as I research this topic, uh, let me know. And then looking forward again to like writing a bit more on this topic. I've been slacking a bit on the research side lately. So I'm excited to get back to it. Awesome. I have a few, few potential bangers coming up. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, you know, I'm waiting with bated breath. And we will put all of those links in the show notes when the, uh, the time comes. Amazing. Melton, thank you once again. Thanks, David. Thanks, David.